0: If you have your Bible, then please take it and open to Romans chapter 2 today. Romans 2, and we'll be looking starting in verse 1 of Romans 2. If you don't have a Bible, then please get uh, the black Bible that's in the pew around you. And that Bible, it's on page 940. And I really, really do want you to have your Bible open. And I think that even if you're using your phone today, we'll flip around a little bit in the pages of Romans to where you would benefit from having a paper Bible. So please open it up page 940 in the Pew Bible. Uh, By the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own, then please take that Bible. It's our gift to you. Uh, Let's read together in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And it's possible, probable, that we will get through three verses today instead of five. And that's okay. It says, "...therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges." Bring passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Right now, uh, in Afghanistan, there's a lot to say about Afghanistan. But if you are there and you're trying to get out, the way to get out is to get on one of those airplanes at the Kabul airport. And I would imagine that those who make it onto an airplane have a really big sense of relief. Now, there's got to be a lot of other emotions there, too, especially for those who are leaving the home, the only home that they've ever known, and going off with nothing to a new country and a new place and not knowing what will happen to them. So there's got to be a lot of feelings, but I would be sure that one of those feelings would be relief to have made it onto that plane. But somebody on one of those planes, if they were to look out from the airport, or from the plane as they were leaving the airport and look down on the, those who were trying to get in and trying to make it onto a plane, they could look down and think to themselves, whew, I sure am glad I'm not like those people anymore. I sure am glad I'm not like those people. When in fact, the fact of being on a plane doesn't mean that they're in the clear. What happens after that is they go to Cotter or to another country and they get vetted and they get processed, and it is possible that some of those who have gotten on those planes will ultimately be sent back that they thought that they were in the clear but ultimately they are not and that they, get, they have to go back where they began what we have in this text is something like that is something like those who thought that they were in the clear as they look down at everyone else and say i sure am glad i'm not at those people not like those people. Well, suddenly, God takes the mirror and holds it up to the face and says, not so fast, not so fast. Now, the beginning of this book of Romans set us up for verse 16 and verse 17, which is the theme verses of all of Romans, where it says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here is what the Bible says. Here is what God says by the Holy Spirit. Here is the power of God to salvation. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is salvation to everyone who believes. And he specifically says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He goes on and he elaborates in verse 17 of chapter 1 that that, that believing is the way that the righteousness of God is revealed. It, 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 the, the grammar is a little weird. It sounds a little weird, but it's clarified throughout uh, the book of Romans that this is talking about the free gift of righteousness, as it's put in 517. The gift of righteousness where God's righteousness is counted as ours by faith alone, not by anything else, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what he's done after those theme verses is he's set in to showing how everybody in the world needs the gospel. Everybody needs Jesus And he is going into the depth of the depravity of mankind to show that you, O man, are not outside of the group of people who need to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. You are not among those who don't need to repent for whatever reason you may have. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, he said this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That ungodliness that failure to follow God, that failure to worship God appropriately from the heart, to have God alone as our God, to hallow the name of the one true God that then leads to all kinds of unrighteousness. And he explained the way in in the rest of chapter 1, as we've been going through for the last few weeks, the rest of chapter 1 talks about the way that that has happened among all of the pagan Gentile nations around the world. That these pagans around the world have have had a revelation about who God is, first of all, through the creation that's around them, where the creation itself is, is declaring the glory of God, and yet, what is the tendency of those pagan Gentile nations? Well, it is to turn away, not to turn to, to worship that God, but to turn and to set up their own ungodly systems of religion with idols and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And even as those pagan nations have the law of God in a way written on their own hearts to, to know through their conscience that is God-given that there is a right and there is a wrong, that there is a moral law of God, and they know, according to one thirty two, they know that those who, who do these things are under the righteous judgment of God, that it is the decree of God that those who do such things deserve death. It says they not only do them, but they also, uh, they also give approval to those who do them. And you would come to the end of chapter 1, and you could come away from that saying, those pagan nations sure are bad. I sure am glad that I am in this airplane, that I have transcended those things, that I am among this group and not that group, the hoi polloi down there on the ground just scrambling around in their ignorance. I sure am glad I am not like those pagan Gentiles. And here is what the Bible does right here it says therefore you have no excuse. It doesn't just say it doesn't just say God reveals his wrath against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of those people over there. It says God reveals his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Including chapter 2 verse 1 you You, O man, who are not God. There is a big difference between God and man. and It is set up right here. God is the judge and man is the judged. And God will judge all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, as it gets into this, this is showing something about the Jewish people. Why do I say that? Well, remember? 116. I said this is the theme verse. I told you you're going to need to flip around in Romans a little bit. Because as we get to chapter 2, we're going to need to think about some of the context of, of the whole argument of, of Romans 1 through 11. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek Now, a major thing that Paul is doing throughout these first 11 chapters of Romans is he is showing that God deals with the Jewish people and God deals with the Gentile people the same. That doesn't mean that he has always done the same things with all peoples, but what it does mean is that God only saves people by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of its whether, whether it's those people over there or these people over here, Gentiles or Jews, those evil pagans way off there, or these really great people in the religious robes over here, this is what he is saying. It is by faith in Jesus that anyone is saved. The gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek, he said. Now, he's been dealing in chapter one with those nations, but now in chapter two, he is turning and taking up the question of what about those who are among the covenant people of the Old Testament, the Jewish people? What about them? And he turns and he says to those who would put themselves in this position of saying, well, I sure am glad I'm not one of those pagan Gentiles. I am among the Jewish people. I am an inheritor of the law of God. I am one of the children of Abraham, circumcised. I love God's law. He says, you have no excuse. Now, how do we know that he's talking to Jewish people, specifically in chapter 2, verse 1, well, it's because he makes it clear all the way down in verse 17. Down in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law of God and boast in God. See, what he's doing when he turns and he says, you, O oh man, he's, he's using a singular you. This is harder to see in modern English because we just say you and you, except, except we don't when we're talking, right? We say you, yous or you guys or y'all. Y'all is my favorite, but I can't get away with it very much in this state. But he's not saying y'all. He's saying singular you. Usually, if Paul's talking to the people that are his audience, the people that he's writing the letter to, he'll use the plural. But here he's using the singular. What he's doing is he is using what's called a diatribe style of writing. Now we hear the word diatribe, and you think, well, that means like an angry rant. Uh, That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about an angry rant. That that style of writing is where you set up a a, a hypothetical conversation partner, somebody who might disagree with you, and and you're writing as though you're having a conversation with that person in, in order to make a point to those who are reading this. And that's what he's done here, is he has set up uh, this person who is the hypothetical one who would come and say, boy, I sure am glad I am not like those Gentile nations. I sure am glad that I am a Jew so that I don't have to worry about what he just says. Well, he says, you, O man, have no excuse. Now, if you look in chapter 2, there are three excuses that are addressed for why it was that so many among the Jewish people did not feel that they needed to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Three excuses that he deals with. The first one, it starts right here where we are, chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to verse 11. These verses are going to deal with the excuse of, but I am Jewish. That, That feeling of, but I am a part of the favored people of God which as we're going to see today, does not only apply to those who are Jewish, but it's a tendency in all kinds of people's hearts who are involved in religious systems of various kinds to say, but I am part of this people, so I am in the clear. I don't need to repent. I don't need to believe. The second excuse that would be given starts in, in verse 12 and goes all the way down to verse 24, which is the excuse of, but I love the law of God. I have the Bible I love the Bible. I, I want to do what the Bible says. I like what the Bible says. I intend to obey the Bible. And therefore, I am on the outside looking in. Uh, and this stuff does not apply to me. I don't personally need to repent because I already like God's law. And he's going to deal with that and tear that apart. And then he, he, there's a third reason, a third excuse that was given, starting in verse 25 of chapter two, which is circumcision. The Bible in the New Testament says a lot about how it is that you no longer have to accept circumcision and the uh, the ceremonial requirements of the law that those have been fulfilled in Christ. But it was part of the objection of those who were among the Jewish people who did not want to submit themselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ to say, "But we received circumcision." We have upon us the sign of the covenant. We are sealed by God. We don't need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is going to tear apart all of those excuses, and he's going to go on and he's going to say not just what the excuses are, but down in chapter 9, after he he explains the gospel and and so many things about the gospel, just these beautiful, beautiful truths about the gospel in chapters 3 through 8, When he gets to chapter 9, 10, and 11, he returns to this question. What about the Jewish people? What about the Jewish people? And I would say that the the big question of, of Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11 is why is it that if Jesus came as the Messiah, the Savior of the Jews, the long expected one from the Jewish people, how could it be that his own did not receive him? How could it be? That's the way it's put in John 1. How could it be that so many among those who it says that the gospel is to the Jew first, why did so many reject it? And he gives three reasons. Chapter 9 gives the reason of election. That God's election is not just a general thing among nations, but that it has to do with individual human beings. He says in in verse 4 of chapter 9, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, and and, and to the, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For, listen to this, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he says though he, he, he says, just as not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And then he goes on and he talks about God's election of Isaac and not Esau. He goes on and he talks about, or excuse me, Isaac, but not Ishmael, of Jacob, but not Esau. And he, he says, here is the thing. God has the right to elect individuals to salvation. That is one of the reasons. Why so many did not come to faith in Jesus and have not yet come to faith in Jesus is because not all Israel are the Israel of God. Not all are the Israel of God. Chapter 10 gives a second reason why so many have not come to faith in Jesus. And that reason in chapter 10 is that they have relied on the works of the law rather than relying on the righteousness that comes from God by faith. He he says, my prayer to God for them. My heart's desire is that they may be saved. But being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So he gives the reason of God's election. He gives the reason of of so many of those among the Jewish people relying upon the law instead of relying upon the righteousness of Christ. Christ. And then in chapter 11, he gives one more big reason that's throughout this chapter of why God has allowed things to go this way. Why it is that so many among the Jewish people, where Jesus came to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, why did so many not believe? Well, he says in chapter 11 that one of the reasons is in order, this is in 1111, that, that By their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. He describes Israel as the vine of God or the olive tree of God. And that those who have not believed are cut off. But that part of that cutting off is in order to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles, those that God would save from the wild olive trees, and graft them in but ultimately he says that this is also in order to make Israel jealous and there is great hope in the end of chapter 11 that there may be in God's plan and we pray for this in the future a great turning of the Jewish people to faith in Jesus Christ to be grafted back in oh we pray for that pray for that But do not think that anyone is saved by any means other than turning to Christ in repentant faith. This is how God saves people. So that's just to set us up for what we are are, are seeing as as Paul lays out God's dealings with the Jewish people beginning in chapter 2. But as we get into these verses, there's a danger for you personally. There's a danger. The danger is that you could say, boy, what we heard about back in chapter one, all of those pagan nations around the world, all of those people, not just the pagan nations around the world, all of those pagans who parade down my street and do all of their pagan things, boy, they sure are bad. Sure, I'm glad I'm not part of them. And then to get to chapter two and to say, boy, can you believe that after God had dealt with the Jewish people in such gracious ways for so long that then they would send the, he would send the Christ through them and then they, they, most of them would just ignore it? Crucify the Lord of glory and then, then fail to believe after that and continue to seek a righteousness of their own? Boy, I sure am glad I'm not like that. But you know what chapter 2 is going to do, even though it's written primarily having to, to, to do first with Gentiles and then now in chapter 2 with Jews. The point is not to say, okay, we got the pagan nations over there, we've got the Jewish people over here, and the Baptists are in the middle and it doesn't apply to you. That is not the point. Paul's point here is to say all unrighteousness and all ungodliness of men has the wrath of God revealed against it, and our only hope is in Christ alone. This applies to you, O man. So don't come to this and say, boy, I sure am glad I'm not like those people. And on that note, let's look at what it actually says. Okay? This applies to you, O man. O human being. O little not-God person like me. Here's what it says, Therefore you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another. You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What we have here is a speaking against nominal religion. We have here God by his Holy Spirit coming right out in very clear words and saying, You think to yourself that just because you count yourself among the religious people that you will be okay. That is hypocrisy, and it will be judged by God for all eternity. This is hypocritical religion. And when he says, therefore, in the very first word, therefore, He is not allowing that wrath of God that's revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness to not apply to those who count themselves among the religious. He is saying, therefore, it has to do with you too, O religious person, O religious person. Now, first thing that he shows us, verse 1, is this self-indicting judgment, self-indicting judgment. He says, oh man, now when he says, you have no excuse, there's lots of excuses that people come up with. Lots of excuses why maybe I personally am exempt. Sure, I can see why that guy over there needs to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, they really need Jesus. But I'm all right. I'm already in the clear. Well, he says, you have no excuse, whatever excuse it is that you may have whether it has to do with being among this people, whether it has to do with trying to follow the law of God or having received a mark of being among the covenant people of God, whatever the reason is, he says, you have no excuse. And who is he talking to? He says, oh, man. When you see that word, oh, it is, oh, there is a weeping that's built into the words of the Holy Spirit that Paul wrote down here. This is, oh, this is, this is not Paul delighting to say, oh, I gotcha. No, this is Paul saying, woe is me. I am sad to tell you this. And he says, man, he is contrasting us to God. You know who God is? Oh, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And you know what you are? Not that. Oh, man. We have no excuse. And he says in particular, you have no excuse, every one of you who judges. Now, what kind of judgment is he talking about? He explains it for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why is that? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things what are those very same things that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32. Things like failing to worship God as God ought to be worshiped, which is called ungodliness. Things like sexual immorality. Things like, well, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hatred of God, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, invention of evil, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness, and not only doing such things but giving approval to those who practice them. He says, Did you come to the end of chapter 1 and say to yourself, Boy, those people are bad and yet not examine yourself? Are you passing judgment on others, and yet you yourself would practice these same things? Some of these things, you don't have to spiritualize it or or go to any kind of, of a different way of interpreting these words at all. There is things like gossip. Gossip is right there. And he says, oh, would you condemn others and practice gossip? woe to you O oh man woe to you things like disobedience to parents things like not having mercy those things they are just straight they're right there and they're evil and then jesus pointed out that it's even deeper than that you might have heard the word murder on the list and thought to yourself well i'm exempt from that one and jesus knew that most of the people he was preaching to thought the same thing and he said you have heard it said you shall not commit murder but i say to you Whoever hates his brother in his heart shall be guilty before God. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Those who, who look at those things about the sexual immorality and say, boy, this really speaks to what's happening in America right now. I sure am glad that this shows us that those people are wrong. And then to go off in their hearts and a lust after others and to bring up images of others to do all oh, so much all of these things where you could say i know the right path and i'm going to proclaim the right path and i'm going to condemn those who are on the wrong path but my situation doesn't count because fill in the blank oh man oh man in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you practice the very same thing. Now, I have to ask here, does this verse, does the Bible in general say never to judge? The answer to that question is a plain no. The Bible does not say never to judge anyone for any reason. Well, how do I know that? Well, Jesus, the very same Savior who came and said, Judge not that you be not judged. He clarified that with additional words, but he's the same Savior that said, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Hear that? Jesus actually commanded judgment, but not wrong judgment, right judgment. One of those places that's clarifying is 1 Corinthians 5.12, where Paul says to the church in Corinth, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? He says it directly. That, that we as churches have a responsibility to judge those inside. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you come to church that you need to be on eggshells, that everybody is judging you. That's not the feeling. That is not what the Bible is teaching. It is this, this idea in the context of 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 and various other places in the Scripture that we have a responsibility to look at the fruit in each other's lives to to rejoice when we see spiritual fruit being born in each other's lives, to thank God for the evidence of grace in each other's lives. And if there is the sad situation where someone ceases to be a fruit-bearing Christian, where there is not the fruit in their lives that gives the evidence of genuine repentance and genuine faith in Christ, then we're given the responsibility to deal with that and if necessary, if there, fails, if there fails to be repentance and fruit, to, to remove them from membership, as it's put, well, it's, it's not quite put that way, but that's, that's what it's uh, saying in Matthew 18, in Jesus' instructions. Oh, and that seems like a hard thing to do, and that's why Jesus says about that very action, where two or three are gathered, there I am among you. Jesus actually said that not to just encourage us when nobody shows up to church, he said that to encourage us when he gives us the very, very difficult task of saying we can no longer affirm that this one who we thought was a brother in Christ is. We cannot continue to keep them in our membership. Oh, that, that is a hard thing. We know that's a hard thing. We know that's a hard thing. But that's part of the judgment that God gives us to exercise. The warning here is not to never use judgment. The warning here is not to be a hypocrite. The warning here is not to say that we will judge others while we ourselves are immune to that. Here's the way Jesus put it in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying? He does not say there is never a time when you should take the speck out of your brother's eye. What he does say is that if you are all about taking the speck out of your brother's eye and you will not let your brother take the speck out of your eye, then you stand condemned. You are walking in hypocrisy. One of the, one of the reasons that being a part of a church is so important, not just watching church on TV, but being a part of a church, is so that we can have others who are looking into our eyes to help us take the logs out of our eyes and and as Christians who are led by the spirit we need to rejoice at the rebuke of a righteous man that God would use to correct us we need to be glad when our brother and sister in Christ sees the log and points it out to us which we probably knew about anyway and yet we had all those kinds of excuses in our hearts for why it was probably okay for me even though it wouldn't be okay for him. It is a blessing from God to have people help us with that. And when we are open to that kind of a thing where we are bearing one another's burdens and growing together in Christ, when we do that, then part of that is also to take the speck out of our brother's eye. Not in hypocrisy, but in love. But what's spoken of here in chapter 2, verse 1, is that hypocrisy. That feeling, God has put me in this world and made me part of his people, and now my task is to point out where everyone is wrong. Boy, some people really, really think that that's a great spiritual gift. The spiritual gift of judgment. That's not a spiritual gift. And if you think to yourself oh man, I can pass judgment on others. I, I am exempt from submitting to this portion of the law of God because I am so good at pointing out where other people break that portion of the law of God. You need to repent, and you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who himself bore our sins on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Righteousness. Repent and believe. So in this hypocritical kind of religion that it's talking about, he says you have no excuse for judging others. Now, this kind of a judgment, this kind of a judgment is one that doesn't even realize so often that it's happening. Those those that Jesus spoke to, he would call them a wicked and adulterous generation. And they would say, How are we wicked? How are we adulterous? We're not going around doing the wicked things that all those wicked people do. We're not committing adultery. But Jesus was calling them an adulterous generation, not just because their hearts were drawn to other women besides their wife, but because their heart was drawn away from God. It was a facade. It was a facade that was set up in order to try to put up a wall between their own hearts and God. You know that can happen. You know that the human heart, the, the unregenerate human heart that has not repented and believed in the Lord Jesus that has not been born again, you know what the human heart does all the time in that lost state is it tries to build up these barriers between itself and the righteousness of God. Barriers that would protect it from the judgment of God. Barriers that would protect it from the light of God. Jesus said that, that those uh, those who don't believe, that they, they're hiding in the darkness so that they won't come into the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. Now, w- we're familiar that that it's very common for lost people to want to hide from that by having all kinds of arguments about maybe God doesn't really exist because of this. Maybe I don't have to believe in Jesus because I think that all religions are the same and I, I, I think I'm pretty good. We're, we're familiar with those kinds of arguments with those outside. Did you know what the Bible teaches? That getting involved in religion can also be a way to build a wall between the human heart and God. This way of saying, I do not have to be exposed in my sin. I do not have to repent of my sin because... I am a member of the church. I'm good. I do not have to be exposed in my sin because I grew up in church. I've always affirmed the facts of the Bible. In fact, there's never been a new birth. There has never been a repentance and a faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Verse 2, he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He's talking here, he talked about self-condemning judgment, but then there is self-condemning practices. Self-condemning practices. Here's, Here's the thing. There were those among the Jewish people in that time and there are those among the Jewish people in our time, and there are those in the Christian world and in Christian churches in our time who, for whatever reason, think that they get a pass to sin. You know what this is, is called, in the theological terms, it's called antinomianism. Have you ever heard that term? Some of you really have. Some of you might not have nomos that has to do with the law, anti is against, and it's this idea, antinomianism is, is this idea, well, if I profess faith in Jesus, then I no longer have to obey what God says. It's this misunderstanding of what the Bible says about being free in Christ, where, where some look at that and they say, Well, well, Jesus died for our sins, and so therefore, and it says we're no longer under law which means we don't have to obey anymore we are no longer bound to obey the law of god because jesus has set us free this is speaking against that directly it is saying we know that the judgment of god rightly falls on those who practice such things do you hear that There, now, uh, among the Jewish people of, of Paul's day, and keep in mind, Paul was one of those people. He had been so jealous for his Judaism and so, so zealous about, about God that, uh, that he was willing to go and persecute Christians. He called himself a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, brought up, brought up among the, the strictest sect of the Jews, among the Pharisees. He knew this. He knew this from personal experience, and he said, still, regardless of whether you're part of that group or this group, the righteous judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Doug Moo, the commentator, says that the Jews had a conviction that their corporate election, that means Being this people of God that God had chosen as a tribe and as a nation, the conviction that their corporate election combined with sincere intention to obey the law sufficed for salvation. Oh, but that was wrong. And it's still wrong. You think to yourself, God will save his church. That's true. You say, God wants us to do things. Well, that's true. You say, well, I'm part of the church and I want to do things. So, okay, I'm out from under this judgment. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Paul's going to tear down that that whole idea in these chapters. He's going to show that justification, our our right standing before God, is by faith alone. It's given by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's going to make that so, so clear starting in chapter 3, verse 21. Paul doesn't deny that there's an advantage for the Jews. He says, in fact, there is a great advantage. He says in chapter 1, what advantage has the Jew? uh, What what value is circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He says a lot of those other advantages as well. In chapter 9 and in chapter 11, given the law of God, Christ is from their seed, among the people of Abraham that God had worked in so much, there are so many advantages, but those advantages do not exempt them from the need to repent and to believe. Guys, the advantages that you have do not exempt you from the need to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, it says he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees You see, this is, this is why God sent John the Baptist. This is why God set up baptism even before Jesus had come is this sign that each individual must personally come to a place of repentant faith in the Lord. It is not enough to be among that people. It is not enough to possess the law, to possess circumcision, to possess all kinds of advantages. Each person must personally, as Jesus put it, be born again by the power of the Spirit. That's why why, why, the first sermon that's preached in the New Testament, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist preached that. And then the first sermon out of the mouth of Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Each person must personally repent. Now, there's a feeling among so many, well, God would not be right to judge me. I am exempt. I'm not like those people over there. Some some would even put their, their faith in being an American. Now, I think that it's pretty obvious that there are some massive advantages to being an American. I think we have have, I mean... The, the liberties that we have, the rights that are God given, that are also guaranteed in our Constitution, that have been uh, rightly applied to more and more people over time as we've understood the implications of those things. The, um, the way that even right now, as, as you see, that even after 20 years of, of giving a particular nation on the other side of the world, A taste of democracy, a taste of education, um, a taste of all kinds of advantages that it can just so quickly collapse as their way of thinking in the Muslim world is built on just a completely different set of presuppositions than our way of thinking in America is built on. I'm not going to go on too long about that, just to say that, yes, there are advantages to being an American. But do you know what you could do wrongly is you could say, wow, I sure am glad I am not like the Taliban. I sure am glad that I, I, that I have the freedoms, that, that, I, that, that my culture that I was brought up in is based on these Christian principles, which, in fact, much of our culture is based on Christian principles, even among those who completely deny Christ. They don't realize how much they are still borrowing and stealing from a Christian worldview. But if we then say, because I have these advantages, I am exempt, it says, you know what? The righteous judgment of God still falls on those who practice such things. If you say to yourself, I was brought up in church, I've heard this line, I have heard this line. I want this line to go away forever. This just is my church. I was brought there from the time that I was a baby. I was in Sunday school as a kid. I was in the youth group. I went off to college and I came back and I was still in the church. Somewhere along the line, I got baptized. It just is my church. It's always been my church. It was my father's church. It was my grandfather's church. Our family's names are on the old stained glass windows. And pastor, you're going to tell me that I need to repent? I'm saying this not with any sense of joy. I'm saying this with the same kind of agony. Oh man, I'm thinking of people that I really hope will return to us one day in repentance and in faith in Jesus. Who we have seen just plainly relying on the fact that they grew up in church. And it's possible that some who think that are still around. And I'm glad that you're still around. But do not think to yourself for a moment that those who practice such things do not rightly have the judgment of God fall upon them just because they are among the people of the church. Let me put it this way to you, too, kids in the room. I know you're growing up in church. Some of you are glad to be growing up in church. Some of you love it. Some of you, you're here because your parents make you come, and I'm glad that they do, and they're doing the right thing, and I hope you'll realize that one day, even if you hate coming here. They are doing the right thing for you. If you say to yourself, not only did I grow up in church, but I'm a pastor's kid. I'm looking down here at these little light-haired kids right here that I love very, very much. You will not stand in the judgment of God because you're a pastor's kid. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The call is to repent, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not to say to yourself, I'm just in that group, I'm okay, I'm exempt. You are not, oh man. He goes on and he talks about his self-destructive confidence in verse 3. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? The answer there is obviously no. The assumption could be made by anybody for any reason that they have for not submitting to Christ in the gospel. They could say, well, I have this reason why I will escape the judgment of God. Yes, I agree with God about his laws. I will stand for the truth. I will stand for what is right. But for me personally, God knows my situation. God knows that I have these things going on. God knows that really the intention of my heart is good. I have, oh, don't say that, guys. (laughs) If you have sin in your life and you are convinced that the intention of your heart is good in that sin, you are wrong. You are wrong. If you have sin in your life and you are convinced that you have a reason that is personal to you that makes it not so bad, you are wrong. This goes for the preacher, too. It is sad to see how many preachers have stood up and preached these things and yet fallen into the same things and fallen into disgrace. This goes for us all. He says, oh man, do you have some reason why, why you would think that you would escape the judgment of God when you yourself do such things. This is just one of those things, whether you are a moralistic Gentile, uh, a, a, a practicing Jew, a practicing Baptist, a Catholic, wherever you are, if you have some reason why you think, well, I am in a different situation. Me and God have this special thing that makes me exempt. No, guys. This is the judgment of God. You won't escape by saying to yourself, I suppose that I will escape. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Guys, the path to stand in the judgment is not the path of self righteousness, it's not the path of being convinced that you're on the side of the good guys. Church membership, I think, is important. I will argue for it from the Bible up and down, but I've got to also say your church membership will not exempt you. Your participation in the Lord's Supper will not exempt you. Your having been properly baptized upon the profession of your faith by immersion will not exempt you. What will exempt you? What will cause you to stand in the day of judgment? is not any of those things that you could store up for yourself as though your own righteousness were worth anything. It is taking those things, as Paul says in Philippians 3, and throwing them in the rubbish bin so that I may gain Christ and may stand, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. You need a righteousness that is from outside of yourself, Not a righteousness that you can set up in your practice of religion or in your your affiliation with a particular group. You need the righteousness of a particular person whose name is Jesus. The righteous one who went to the cross and died for our sins. And I've already quoted this verse and I'm going to quote it again from 1 Peter 2.24 where it says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in yourself. Here's what it says in Luke 18. It says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, pointed his eyes up to heaven and beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Turn to Christ. Do not think to yourself that because you are not like other people that you will be okay. It is the one who beat his breast and called out to God in repentance and in faith, be merciful to me, a sinner. He is the one who became right with God and whose name was written in the Lamb's book of life, who will stand in the day of judgment when the Pharisee who thought everything was okay will come under the judgment of God rightly. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Don't think that you have a reason why you personally are exempt from repentance and in faith and in trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who is righteous, whose righteous judgment will be shown for all eternity. God, I pray that no one here would be in the position of being uh, a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only. Oh, God, what hypocrisy that is to stand up and to say that we we understand the, the righteous rules of God and the righteous religion that he set up, and yet to say I'm exempt God I pray that you would forgive any who might be in a status of hypocrisy today I pray that you would give them by the power of the Holy Spirit the grace to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because we know that the day of judgment is coming we know that no one can stand on his own righteousness no one can stand on his own religion no one can stand on anything but on Christ alone so I pray that you would grant that to be the case For all of our kids who are growing up in church, who have so many advantages from that. For all of us who are here in America, where we have so many advantages. For all of us who are part of First Baptist Church of Matawan, where we have so many advantages. God, would you grant us to be worshipers in spirit and in truth by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for your grace toward hypocrites who turn in faith to Jesus. Thank you for your grace toward me. Thank you for your grace toward all who believe, and I pray that that would be us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.